This is a Glass Box Media Podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. For the past 20 years, I've been working in the apparel industry, sourcing, buying, and printing t-shirts for my clients. The one brand I return to every time is Bella Canvas. They cover all the bases, style, sustainability, color selection, and wearability. These really are the softest shirts available. The best news is they cut their fabric in Los Angeles. And for any of us that know the apparel industry, we know what a big deal this is. Whether you're looking for t-shirts, sweatshirts, joggers, tanks, or long sleeves, Bella Canvas really does have you covered. The best news is that Bella Canvas now has a retail line available at shop.bellacanvas.com, where you can find more information about this amazing company and discover online exclusives. Use the code DBI2021 at checkout to receive 20% off your first order. Limit one per customer. Bella Canvas really did fuel the t-shirt movement. Be different. Be Bella Canvas. How y'all doing today? What's life like for y'all right now? Day by day, bro. Yeah? Yeah, trying to make this time go by, you know what I'm saying? How long have you been in the system? Like, when I first got locked up, that's what you meant? Yes, sir. So I was 12. Then just since 12 to 17 now, locked up, like, eight, nine times. I missed the last three Christmases just being locked up on Christmas. I won't. Like, just on Christmas. I'm always locked up on Christmas, so. I was 15 years old. Just, like, five years before I believed in, in Santa Claus, like. I'm going on three years, um, but, and I got, I got 50 more, to be honest. I got 50 more years to do. So it ain't, yeah, I got a while left, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to turn it around. I'm gonna find a way to turn it around somehow. I don't know. Hmm. What's up with you, sister? My first time being incarcerated, I was about 14. I've been in and out ever since then. The last, most last recent charges of court, when I was 16, they tried me as an adult. Growing up in my household was different. Sometimes no life, no water, no food, so I turned to the streets for real. And the streets got me, but now they don't got me no more. This week, we conclude our first season discussing juvenile LWAP nationally and specifically in the state of Michigan. We welcome experts, lawyers, and community leaders to discuss how mass incarceration impacts communities. Sharing our conversations with Deb LaBelle, civil rights attorney in Michigan, and Josh Robner from The Sentencing Project, we take a deeper dive into the stats and effects of juvenile life sentences. Your call to action this week is to read the recently published work from Josh Rovner on black disparities in youth incarceration, available at www.thesentencingproject.org. Thank you for an amazing first season. We look forward to next season and our bonus content.
My name is Josh Rosner. I've been with the Sentencing Project for about eight years now. We're a research and advocacy think tank in Washington, D.C. devoted to ending mass incarceration in this country. My title is Senior Advocacy Associate, and I have a number of jobs that really overlap both research and advocacy. In the juvenile life without parole space, I rely on the work of my colleagues who do a lot of the counting of the number of kids in facilities and, and then get involved in campaigns to change these laws, both for people under 18 and increasingly for people over 18 as well. One of the papers that you did that's on the website specifically goes through juvenile LWAP and sort of the numbers for the United States. And one of the things that was striking to me is the fact that we're the only country in the world that sentences its, its youth to life in prison without parole. That's correct. I mean, the rest of the world has moved away from this. It, it aligns with what you see elsewhere in our criminal justice system of much of the world getting rid of the death penalty, and we still rely on it here. In the United States, the Supreme Court ruled 2005 that people under 18 can't be put to death. So what we're left with is life without parole or death by incarceration as the highest available punishment for people under 18, and we are the only country that uses that. You know, I know there's been two Supreme Court rulings over the last decade that affect this, but from what I've what I've heard from Suave and from other former and current juvenile lifers is that doesn't necessarily translate in terms of reducing sentences or even getting necessarily resentencing hearings in some states. Well, there really have been a lot of successes. And Suave himself, I, I understand, used to be serving a life without parole sentence, and I couldn't be happier to know that he's home now. So the the number who are serving life without parole has in fact dropped by a lot. My colleague Ashley Nellis does this count every four years, and it fell 38% between the 2020 count and the 2016 count. Pretty good drop, and a lot of that is due to state Supreme Court rulings or legislatures resentencing, requiring the resentencing of people who were previously serving JLWAP. But certainly that count of about 1,500 people who are no longer young by any stretch of the imagination. These are people who've been in prison for a long time, and many cases being my age of you know mid-40s or, or older because they've been in for so long, but we still call them juvenile life without parole prisoners. Nevertheless, there's many unanswered questions in that count, and that's people who are serving what you might call virtual jail walk. Someone who's serving an 80-year sentence or a 120-year sentence that's technically not life without parole. Life without parole in most courts is a specific sentence. And the Supreme Court hasn't said anything about those virtual lifers or even the, the thousands of kids serving life with parole, given how stingy parole boards can be in this country. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. On that same, going in that trajectory, do you all look at the numbers of people that have been resentenced and then sentenced to life again as well? Because I know in Michigan, that's been a big issue in a few of the counties there. And we're talking to, to um, Deb LaBelle after this about the people she's representing there. But she told me that there's one county specifically that all of the resentencing hearings have been for black men and all of those black men have been resentenced to life. I'm so thankful for people like Deb LaBelle who are doing this work state by state and person by person. That The danger of sitting in a seat like I do and looking at counts that are in the hundreds is you can very easily lose sight of the individuals involved. I have not been able to track case by case or the sense of what has happened to the people who were formerly sentenced to life without parole. 
and how many were released. I, I think my friends at the campaign for fair sentencing of youth probably have a better sense of that than I do. What's mind blowing to me is that in Pennsylvania, they have a piece of legislation which is titled 850, which state that moving forward, juvenile lifers, juveniles that commit a crime or murder will get sentenced to 35 years to life. And they only put that piece of legislation out in 2012 when the Supreme Court ruled on, on, on the case that ultimately got us out to keep the rest of the people that was already in prison as juveniles and it backfired because when the court went, when the case went back to the Supreme Court, um, the Supreme Court said it was retroactive. But the legislation is still in the books, 850. Mm -hmm. So for the guys that's been in 30, 40, 50 years, we get to come home. But for the guys that's coming in fresh in the system, they get the 35 years if they get the first degree murder charge. And then if you get hit by parole, you got to wait five years before you go see the parole again. And I have a problem with that. Most of the time in Pennsylvania, parole is going to give you a hit based on the nature of the crime. So that means that that young guy that's coming in now probably end up doing 50 years before he have a fair chance or she a fair chance to come home. And I, I really have a problem with that. I think that I think we need more advocacy. I appreciate the opportunities that Pennsylvania has given juvenile lifers to come home. But most of them, most of us that have come home, we have over 30 years or more in. We are in the mid-50s, right? And we're probably never going to offend again. That's the fact. Pennsylvania has always been one of the states that has the most of cases like this. I mean, in our 2016 count, Pennsylvania had the most of any state, and that's hardly because Pennsylvania is the biggest state. When you see California and Texas at the top of the list, then you're like, well, let's control for population. But Pennsylvania, Louisiana, Michigan, these are generally the top three states when you count the number of kids, and that's not related to the amount of crime there, the number of people. It's, it's about a perspective. And that law that, that passed in Pennsylvania of how inadequate it is to the problem that's being faced, as frustrating as that is, you know, you can point to other states in the neighborhood that have not done such a lengthy sentence before that opportunity for parole. D.C. and West Virginia, it's 15 years. Virginia, it's, it's 20 years. New Jersey, also 20 years. This is not... There's nothing magical about that number either. You know, I mean, there's no reason to be keeping someone in prison who is not a threat to the public anymore, who's right. feeling remorse and feeling, you know, has shown some rehabilitation. And to think that someone would have to wait 40 years, 35 years before their chance to, to show that. And then, as you say, that the original offense is the thing that it comes up at the parole hearings. We hear that all the time. And that's the one thing that, that can't change. That's in the past. But things that can change is maturity and, and the relationship with the families and whether someone has an opportunity for a stable job. That's who they are today. And that's who the parole board ought to be making a decision about. How do you feel that the United States Supreme Court ruled that you can't keep a person in prison that committed a crime under the age of 18 for the rest of his life? 
all her life. How do you feel that same person is now in a state like Pennsylvania on parole for life? Shouldn't that be an issue with advocates and people across the border where if you rule is an Eighth Amendment violation to keep that person in prison, why couldn't it be a violation to keep that person on paper for the rest of their life? Because parole is just another extension of the prison system. Yes. So before I answer your question, I need to make a little correction to what you said, because what the Supreme Court said was that a mandatory life without parole for someone under 18 is what's unconstitutional. Someone who's under 18 can be sentenced to life without parole under the Constitution. I, I think that's wrong. But that was still in rare about, cases. Uh, yeah. In very you know, rare they, cases. They use the word uh, permanent incorrigibility, that right. it should be a rare offender, but not banned entirely the way that, say, the death penalty for people under 18 has been banned. But you raise an important question. And when, you know, your question started with, how do I feel about that? And I, as an advocate, as a researcher, I'm mad all the time. You know, I mean, and I'm, I'm learning things all the time about flaws in the system. And so you fix one problem and you learn that there's another set of problems behind it. I have been having conversations with people elsewhere recently who brought up exactly what you just brought up, Suave. And I hadn't given a moment's thought to that before a month ago. And I think that is my job as an advocate to just keep learning and to keep thinking about what it is that a, that a true justice system ought to look like. And that a permanent parole when it's so easy to get sent back in for missing appointments, for failing a drug test, for if you tick off your neighbor in the wrong way and the police believe what your neighbor had to say about this, then disturbing the peace charge. I'm living proof of that. I went back for 85 days because my ex-girlfriend made a false accusation and they believed it and Ironically, I was working at the police station when she made that, that accusation because I used to work at the police station, but they still took me back. And not only to mention when you on lifetime parole, you can't get suitable housing. You can't get the proper jobs because in Pennsylvania, they've run a background check when you go apply for housing. So now we stuck in these dilapidated neighborhoods for housing, which are what they call hotspots in Philadelphia. Crime rate is up, murder rate is up, and now you want me to live right down the block from that. And I'm on parole. Yeah, yeah I mean, and that you know, is, the housing issues are one of a set of collateral consequences that we use in this country to punish people after they've been punished. So your ability to join the military, which I think you and I are a little old, for that, but that can be harmed. Your ability to get jobs in any number of professions that have nothing to do with the original offense is just a, a, a appalling thing. And these are things that can impact your family also. So in most states, if you want to operate a in-home daycare, for example, you can't have someone with a felony conviction in the house with you. That may be a restriction meaning that you have now punished the family members of the incarcerated person or forced the family member to kick out their own flesh and blood from the house so that they can so that they can have that job it is appalling it is something that that we can fix under the law 
you know, we've seen laws changing the application process. It's called like ban the box. In other words, you can't ask someone about their felony conviction in the application process. Could come up later on, but these are things like we discussed maybe five, ten minutes ago. There's always a new problem after you've solved the one in front of you. So I, it, I'm really sorry about your housing, but I'm well, not at all surprised to hear about I'm, your housing it's, problems. It's funny that you say that because I'm going through the same situation with the bantha box. Be mindful, I have two degrees from Villanova University. So I know I qualify for the job that I'm applying. I was working at another job and I applied for a case management job with a nonprofit. They offered me the job, they sent me through the training. Two weeks later, I get a letter saying we're resending our offer. Because someone in HR decided not to respect the banter box rule, they went back to my whole history and said, based on your original case, we don't want you to work with the vulnerable population. Now be mindful, I come from a background where since I've been home, I've been working with the vulnerable population. I work at the police station. Don't get no better than that. I got clearance from the state legislators in Pennsylvania because I was I was the clerk for a state rep. So I know I meet the qualification. And to this day, I haven't been able to get a job because the jobs that I apply for, they don't actually do initial process because the band of bots. But when they get to the hiring process, oh, you have a felony conviction. And some of these organizations collect federal grants to help returning citizens. That's what I don't understand. How you are an organization advocating for returning citizens, you don't want to hire returning citizens. I never understood that. And um, so I was wondering what advice you have for advocates out here when it comes to dealing with returning citizens that serve decades in the penitentiary. You know, it's so hard when you are evaluating applicants for any job opening that you have to try to figure out who the best applicant is. You know, you have one person who's got a great writing sample and another person who's got great recommendations but a lousy writing sample. One person presents really well when you talk to them on the phone, but they're not a good writer. And I think it's just vital that organizations like mine when we're given the opportunity to hire someone, that we consider individual involvement in the system as being a plus in the same way that you would consider those other things that I talked about as you're evaluating. Now, that's not to say that that's necessarily the best person for the job. There's a lot of things that you try to balance when you're hiring in a position. But the, the story that you tell of organizations supposedly devoted to justice reform who wouldn't hire someone uh, with a criminal record. That's not my experience, but I don't doubt your experience. We have formerly incarcerated people on our staff. We welcome them to apply. I, I you know, always hope that we can grow our diversity as an organization, and that's one of the ways that I think it's important also families of people who have direct involvement. If your brother has been incarcerated or your parents, that's a unique perspective that you can bring. I think it's really important that as hiring managers are evaluating applicants, that they're looking at a whole person that's in front of them, 
and I'm sorry for what you're going through. I mean, it's hard for anyone to look for a job and find a job. I've been unemployed myself and waited to get that job interview and not made it to the next hurdle. But I never thought that it was because of what I look like or my criminal record that was holding me back. Things that I can't control, I never thought that's what was holding me back from the next stage of a hiring process. Yeah, so talking about that, when when people do get out, obviously they face all these challenges. As an advocacy group, I guess I'm curious about what the sentencing project's doing to move the conversation forward. I mean, your stats and your reporting on your website are phenomenal. So how do you sort of work within the system to start to make these changes? Because I'm somebody that doesn't believe that long prison sentences do anyone any good. And the, the quite honestly, the stats bear it out. Over the age of 50, generally people don't reoffend. I mean, they've, they've basically termed out of their life of crime, if that's what you want to call it. But it's it, in a lot of times, people that are getting released are also not, just aren't interested in returning to that, that in any way. So what can we do as a community on the Kevin and Suave side to advocate and what, what, how can we join the sentencing project and what you're doing? And that's a lot of stuff, but you can break that down one by one. Reform happens at the state level. I understand how most people look at politics in this country and pay a lot of attention to what's happening in in Congress and with the president. But people who are incarcerated are largely incarcerated for having violated state laws. You know, we have people in federal prison on any number of charges, but the action is at the state level. And what's most important is for people to find the organizations in their states that are doing that work. We have some connections that we can offer at the Sentencing Project. But for me, as a Washington, D.C.-based advocate, I go where I'm welcome. You know, it doesn't do me much good as a guy from the Washington, D.C. suburbs to call up legislators in Little Rock, Arkansas, and tell them what they need or how their laws ought to change. These, These campaigns need to be led by people locally. And there's things that different professions and organizations and people can contribute to that. I think most people, most of your listeners may be very surprised how impactful it is to contact their state legislator, to know who your state rep is, to know who your state senator is, and to let that person know how much this matters to you. I think that they get so used to hearing from upper middle class connected people about the problems in their lives, which isn't to say that potholes and the quality of public schools in upper middle class communities aren't issues to be addressed. But those issues keep coming up again and again and again, because that's who that's who they're hearing from. They're hearing from their constituents. And to understand that this is something that matters to you, And then, you know, I mentioned getting connected to local advocates. And you can find some of those organizations on our website. I think that if anyone wants to contact me, my email address is jrovner, R-O-V-N-E-R, at sentencingproject.org. And I can do what I can to say, oh, yeah, I know someone in Pennsylvania. Um, You know, that's our job as a connector to do that kind of thing. It can be pretty frustrating as an advocate sometimes because the best available bill can still be pretty lousy. But it's still an improvement. I see bills that deal with 
smaller problems, even though larger ones remain. That's something I'm working on in, in Maryland right now. There are a couple bills I'm working on in Maryland, and one of them is to ban juvenile life without parole. Another is changes in the juvenile system. I am totally behind this bill, even though it's not addressing what I see as the most pressing issues in the system. I don't expect everyone else to be patient like that. This does not impact my own life personally, and I would expect directly impacted people, and that's family members, to have an impatience to demand more from their legislators, and you can only do that if, if you're in touch with your legislators. This is the first time cameras have been allowed inside Wayne County's juvenile detention facility, where each child or teenager gets their own room, clean clothing, three meals a day, and a strict schedule. And Max says that structure actually helps put kids at ease. A lot of these kids, they have to fend for themselves. You know, it's tough out here on the streets, and they have a chance to, to come within our facility and get 24-hour supervision and they can feel safe. Some days it's tough. We have some parents that don't want to take their kids home. Michelle Hall is the director of the detention facility. She says while the staff is strict in holding kids accountable, they do it with compassion. Only about uh, 10% of our kids ever get a visit from a family member. Um, That's tough on kids. It's sad. Everybody, every kid wants to be accepted. Every kid wants to be loved and supported. Deborah LaBelle is an attorney in Michigan, private practice attorney that is currently representing many former and current juvenile, juvenile LWAP incarcerated individuals. And we're really glad to have you on the podcast. You and I had a brief conversation last week about some of the stats there and it's a little overwhelming, quite honestly. Why don't we talk a little bit about how you got into this work? Because it, your name is synonymous with defending these cases and taking these and doing these resentencing hearings. And obviously, people like Suave already know who you are. So your reputation speaks for itself in this community. When you first started this out talking about death by incarceration, it reminded me that when I did start out doing this work, we did an initial sort of group project trying to focus group trying to find out if people even knew that this kind of sentence existed and we found out that a lot of people who when you'd say oh they have life without possibility of parole or life sentences in the public's mind the media had already helped to say that well life really you get up seven or eight years and they had no concept that this meant death that you would die in a prison cell and we had just finished our first Michigan report on uh, life without parole among youth and Amnesty and Human Rights Watch and the ACLU were putting together the larger uh, national report. And they changed the name, actually, so that said, it said, for the rest of your lives. And, and, and to to really get people to understand that this was for the rest of their life. This was not a life sentence where you'd had an opportunity to get out, but this was no opportunity to demonstrate that you could rejoin us. So I started this back then when I first started interviewing youth and adult prisons, and I myself um, could not believe when they started saying, we think we're here for life, we're not sure. And that in Michigan and many other states at that time, no one had kept track of it. No one knew when we started asking states, how many children are in your prisons under these kind of sentences? And they say, well, we don't keep track based on age and life means could be parolable or could be not. And so it was like milk cartons. I mean, 
there were thousands of children missing in prisons and no one had any idea of the kind of sentence they were serving. I mean, that is unbelievable to me on so many levels. And it's obscene that a country that considers itself to be the leader of the free world, it still allows its children to be incarcerated without the possibility of parole. The only one in the world that still does it. So I guess, how did you get into this? This is such a, it's a, such an intense part of, you know, of law practice. What was the impetus that sort of landed you in this field of, of work? Well, some of the work that I was doing, I was really focusing on issues involving human rights and American exceptionalism and trying to litigate in U.S. courts those issues where the United States was aberrant and exceptional from other countries in, in, in the types of treatment of people in detention or in other areas. And this one was the worst. I had done some work on behalf of women and girls in detention and started to understand what kind of treatment people were getting, and the majority of them were kids of color. And so I started to approach it from a human rights aspect, which is document it first. Let's start a great documentation project across the country, which was the rest of their lives, that documentation. Then let's raise the education for people because people really didn't understand this. And then let's challenge it by litigation. And it was the first prong, really. It was to say, listen, children are being treated horribly in our country with regard to the way the justice system views them and punishes them. And if we could convince the courts that take the worst, what people thought was the worst sentence, a homicide, and we could get the court to understand that this, these were children and that we had failed. We had failed them, society, parents, community, sisters, brothers. We had been the people who had failed them and that they are capable of coming back and joining us. And we owed it to them to rehabilitate and bring back um, that if we could get the Supreme Court to recognize this group as children, that it would start the, the sort of watershed for all other treatment of children and now emerging adults, the majority of which were children of color who got caught up in this system. And if we could show the racial inequities of it, and if we could go, which we did go to the United Nations and the UN and point to the United States and what they were doing and shame them, use a bit of shame at the same time, that we could bring all these components together to start changing the system. And that was over 10 years ago. I mean, it's just amazing. So talk a little bit about what's going on currently in Michigan, because I know that there's been incredible delays in resentencing hearings for many, many of the youth that have been affected by the Supreme Court rulings over the last decade. And it just like Michigan is a really you know prime example of states that are dragging their feet, resentencing people to life again. And I think you mentioned in our phone call that there's one county that like everyone that's been resentenced is both black and has been re- resentenced to an extremely long sentence or life again. And I, we, you know, those are the kinds of things that people don't even know are happening. Yeah, I think, and people don't think of it as happening in the Midwest as far as says both Pennsylvania and Michigan followed a similar track and, and not to be partisan, but we followed this track because we both had 
a long-term history starting in the mid-90s of Republican political control in the states. And we both had legislatures and judges that reacted to the media's you know, disinformation about the uh, super predator and the dangers of young kids in our country. And so we both did things like had 17-year-olds were no longer children. 17-year-olds in Michigan were treated as if they were adults in the criminal justice system, not for anything else, of course, but just the criminal justice system. And Michigan went down to as young as 14 for automatic treatment as an adult if a homicide was involved. And you didn't have to commit the homicide. You could, over a third of the cases in Michigan are what we call felony homicides, which are mostly kids in cars um, or kids as lookouts or kids involved in some way in which an adult committed a crime that resulted in a homicide. So we had this confluence of laws that resulted in Michigan having the second only under Pennsylvania of the number of youth, over 363, who were sentenced to this no-hope sentence, die-in-prison sentence, without we will ever look at you, and without, by the way, um, ever considering their youth, their history, any opportunity to give an explanation as to why this happened, where they were at, what was going on. And that happened in Michigan at an increasing pace in the 90s until we got to this number and until the Supreme Court required that youth not have a mandatory sentence, but they have an opportunity to demonstrate, be resentenced and demonstrate that they weren't um, incapable of rehabilitation and that they should be able to have the opportunity for release. Michigan fought that, by the way. I can't remember about Pennsylvania. Michigan said it's not retroactive. So, okay, going forward, we'll do that. But the 363 that are serving that sentence, they have to stay there till they die. And that required another round of U.S. Supreme Court rulings that said, no, you must resent. So that should have been the end in many ways and what we'd hoped. But instead, prosecutors in Michigan overwhelmingly, over 90% of the prosecutors chose to move to resentence these children, not now children, to again, a life without parole sentence and to have hearings that they would stay there. Despite the U.S. Supreme Court said, you know, it's only the rarest of the very rare, and I would note I have never met that child, that is incapable of rehabilitation that it's incapable, and we can tell you that now, that they will never be redeemed, that there's nothing that could happen. Supreme Court allows that there was the rarest of the rare that possibly could fit that um, situation, but in Michigan, they said hundreds, almost everyone fits that situation. So we had to file yet another litigation, class action challenging that, and requiring people to look at youth and to actually exercise discretion and to make some showing that this that someone who had spent 30 years in without a misconduct and had college classes had clearly already re been rehabilitated many years previously was somehow incapable of being rehabilitated that resulted in dropping the request for many 
individuals. And so we now have a hundred and I think close to 120 people who have gotten out. And one of the things I say and said the other day to legislators who are looking at legislation to abolish this sentence once and for all and to allow youth to come up for parole at a much younger age after they've reached maturity is that there has not been a single issue of recidivism of even a traffic ticket you know that for the individuals who have come out come out they've rejoined our community after being deeply damaged i mean the strength that they've shown it's uh it's overwhelming to me to see the capacity for human strength after what they've gone through i am shocked that they're not coming out with searing anger frankly well i think suave can actually speak to that because he is he's we've talked repeatedly yeah. and he said i'm not angry but you know all he's got a fire in him that i'm First of all, Pennsylvania did try to say that it wasn't retroactive. And so it took another round to go to the Supreme Court, but they went a little further. They created this legislation called 850, which is for the new guys coming in now. They would automatically, if there's a first-degree charge, they would get um, conviction, I mean. They would get 35 years to life. And then after 35 years, you go see parole. And if parole give you a hit the first time, you got to wait five years. And if they give you a hit the second time, you got to wait seven years. And we all know that when you go to parole the first time, almost always you're going to get hit, right? Because you just can't take juveniles and put them in a dope prison and think they're not going to get in no type of altercations. Speaking for myself, it took me 10 years to adjust to really understand what the meaning of life was. 10 years to survive, because I was thrown in Gratifold Prison. Anybody that know anything about prisons, Gratifold State Prison was like the worst prison in Pennsylvania. And I had to protect myself. And situations where I really didn't want to do it. But if I didn't do it, then I was going to be somebody else's victim. So I had, I was false. So to me, you know, that's kind of crazy that Pennsylvania did that. Like, are we going to create a different law? And they created the 850 to deny us, the guys that have already been 30, 40 years. So that's why we had to go back to the Supreme Court. But no, I'm not angry. I've never been angry. And I say that because to see 380 of my brothers and sisters home, to me, is a miracle. So I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for people like you that advocated to the Supreme Court, open their ears and, and listen. However, why should I be angry? If anything, I'm energized. If anything, I'm like no child should be left behind. So for returning citizens, especially juvenile lifers, it should be our mission to ensure that every child come home and enjoy the same opportunities that we are enjoying even though there's some ups and downs with that because people in prison we live in a bubble we think that it's all peaches and greens when we come out I'm here to tell my fellow juvenile lifers 
It's not going to be what you think it is. It's going to be ups and downs. You're going to get denied jobs. You're going to get denied housing. But you're also going to have an opportunity to do other things that you can't do right now while you're in prison. So I would never be angry because my community has suffered a loss, which is the loss of a human being. We cannot replace that. And I say that because I don't want nobody to think that this is just about bringing people that are incarcerated home. We are very sensitive to the needs of the victims. And I want to make that clear. So we don't have the right to be angry. If anything, we come home, we want to be contributors to the community. And we should be. We should help rebuild our community. We should help the youth that's going through issues right now stay away from these prisons. And if you're angry, you can't move with anger. Because when you're angry, you do moves that are not conducive. So I say to anybody that come home, leave that anger at the door. Come home, enjoy your life, contribute to the community, whether it's volunteering to a church, Serving food to the homeless Just contribute, be a contributor And be thankful that we have people like you Ms. LaBelle That advocated all the way to the Supreme Court To they listen And pay attention And now we home So there's no need for anger I really Appreciate your saying all that And I think that The people I've helped represent Really embody what you're saying and I have also seen um, so much healing go on between families of the people who were harmed and people coming out. And with both of them being able to put down a lot of anger, especially I've seen it with families who lost a family member and who were stuck in that time and that when they met the individual who they were focused on for a very long time, having anger about when they got past that, when they started to understand what was happening here, that it wasn't a monster, that it was, you know, that there were explanations, that there's rationality to it, that you can actually understand, not only understand and grapple with, but you can go out and try to change things to prevent that happening again. That when you have that ability, that it takes an enormous amount of anger and grief away from, not taking it away, but channels it in a much more productive way. One, one person told me that he, his grandmother had been killed and he was stuck in seeing his grandmother we loved in a violent event. And that when he met with the youth who came out and they talked and understood a lot of what was going on and the pain there and the remorse. And that, that he said to me, all of a sudden, I could smell the cookies my grandmother made me again. I had my grandmother back. I wasn't frozen in that moment, that one moment, that worst moment for everybody. And I had my memories back. And that ability to move forward and then both of them, began contributing a great deal to the community was something that I'll actually never forget because it's what you speak to, too. Let's 
let's see, let's honor and remember what happened, but let's contribute, let's move forward, let's change the system. In my anger for the lack of accountability for some of what has happened with judges and with legislatures, I think there has to be accountability, but there has to be a lot of education as well. Just an enormous amount of education, which you are helping and people who go, you know, when, when legislatures actually meet people and get past the persona that has been put forward as to who is there and what happened, it's, a, it's an awakening for them. We have a lot of work to do. We have a lot of education to move them, not just for this group, get everybody out here, but going forward for long-term sentences, for basketball sentences of 90 to 100 years, for not just the under 18, but 19 and 20, 21, the emerging youth, that we have to really start to educate people. And, and, and it is changing. In Michigan, they just raised the age of the second chance legislation to 26. It's a crucial movement to recognize that somehow when your 18th birthday comes, you're not automatically beyond all of the constraints of youth, impulsivity, and difficulties of it. And that it's not just life without parole sentences, but people should have an opportunity after 10 years to start to see a parole board and to have that hope to motivate you to get to where you need to go to come back into our community. Checker, a longtime partner of my company, Social Imprints, is a sponsor of this podcast. Checker is a fair chance employer and the leading technology company in the background check industry. They're building a fairer future through technology that balances trust, safety, and fairness. A past record should not be a barrier to the pursuit of life and professional successes. Checker helps companies and candidates achieve their goals with products like Assess, Candidate Stories, and help with candidate expungements, among others. To learn more about Checker, these expungement services, or how to become a fair chance employer, go to Checker at Checker.com. Thank you, Checker. I was a victim of crime. I could still, I could sit here and I could still see my grandfather giving me that haircut when I was 12 years old and somebody walking into his barbershop and blowing his brains out while he was giving me a haircut. I felt that blood on my... And for years, I was angry about that. I wanted other people to hurt. Then I offended. Or I was accused of offending for a serious crime which somebody lost their life. I found myself on the other side of the spectrum where I'm asking for forgiveness. So if I'm asking for forgiveness, I should be able to offer that same forgiveness back. And I forgive the man that um, killed my grandfather. And even though me and him had an altercation when I was in the federal prison, I saw him and I was a young guy in the early 90s that sent me to Leavenworth Penitentiary in Kansas City. I ran into him and we dealt with the problem. And we dealt with it in a very violent way he had a knife I had a knife and when I came at him the only thing I saw was him walking in that barbershop and Mm -hmm. killing my grandfather and I told myself that day you ain't gonna kill me I'm not scared of you with a knife or or, or with a gun it's on 
but what I learned from that was that I only felt good like for four or five minutes. And then all the guilt and regret came. Because I always believed that there was a possibility that I could get out of jail one day. And here I am trying to stab somebody, the person that murdered my grandfather. For what? It wasn't going to bring my grandfather back. And lucky for me, the person did not die. I got away with it in the prison because I was in level one prison. And that was the way you dealt with them. But the lesson from that was I ain't had no satisfaction with that. My satisfaction towards that person came when I looked into his eyes after I was released from prison and I told him, I forgive you. I forgive you for what you did, bro. And I'm sorry for bringing harm into your life. Because if I didn't do that, I would have come home for my life sentence and probably would have tried to kill him. Because it was in my mind. Because you killed my hero. You killed the only father figure I ever had. You killed that person. So when he killed my grandfather, he killed a part of me. But today, I can tell you, I can see my grandfather giving me a haircut on the weekends. I can see that, and I enjoy the memories. So to be angry and to be holding that grudge, it don't work for me. It, I know it don't work for other lifers that have come home because we, we talk, and I feel better about it. I feel better, and I want people to understand that it's all right to be a, a person to forget. It don't make you soft. It don't make you a different person. It don't mean you weak. It make you stronger. And because of me being able to forgive somebody, I've been able to work with multitude of people and, and get past the grudges and you committed this crime so I don't mess with you. Because you see that in prison. And I've always been blown away by that. How I'm in prison, accused of taking somebody's life, but I'm judging somebody else because they're in prison for a crime that I don't like. So I live in the rim of possibility. I live in the rim that if we could communicate, if we could forgive each other, I'm not saying forget. I'm just saying forget. We will be able to move on in life in a peaceful way And my forgiveness Is not for the person that killed My grandfather It's for my personal peace And I tell people mm -hmm. The same way I ask The victim family in my case To forgive me Then I gotta be able to give that same forgiveness To others Yeah. Because if I commit another crime The, the work that you've done For 10, 12, 20 years the work that um, Brian Stevenson done to help us get out will be out the window. Will be out the window. So I'm so proud of the juvenile lifers in Pennsylvania that have come home and no one has reoffended. Yep. Because it proved to society that we can't become productive members of the community, that we could contribute to the community and help 
in whatever way is possible to stop some of the violence that's going on in our community. So I'm 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 proud of the juvenile lifers in Pennsylvania. And and Michigan too. I mean, I don't think that people should be held to the standard of perfection. It is extremely difficult coming out, adjusting and reclaiming lives after what has happened in prison and the distance and the difficulties. But I am eternally grateful that everyone in Michigan too there's been is thinking about in order for uh, it to be easier for everyone else to get out, I have to live this life without any stepping aside any line and do the best I absolutely can. And they, they all have, you know, they all have. And I, you know, one of the things that I, I guess I was naive in a way, but one of the things I could never understand to begin with, Rise, is that all we were asking for people to be released we are only asking for the opportunity to go to a parole board, which, as you say, is no walk in the park, and just demonstrate that, you know, you're no risk to, to it's enough's enough, and to come home to your community. And I thought, when all you're asking is for people to look, just look, you know, just take off your blinders and look and see who they are and what really happened that that wouldn't be such a huge lift. But, for example, in Wayne County, and Kevin mentioned it at the beginning, the prosecutor is pursuing life without parole again for 51 people in there, some who have served 40, 50 years and have stellar records. And is again, she's again saying, no, no, I'm going to seek the life without possibility of parole for them. And it's, despite all the knowledge of the injustice of it, the unconstitutionality of it. And so one of the things that we really do hope to shine a light on is that kind of behavior. What's motivating it? What, and if you have any suggestions on how we get to a prosecutor like that, when many of the others, uh, a new prosecutor in one of the other counties that had the most, um, walked in and took off the life without parole um, and agreed to resentence all but one, which she's still considering, to a term of years of um, no, tw- no more than 25 to 60. And so it, it recognizing what an unjust sentence this was and how senseless it is, not just for people inside, but our community members, and the, the both the moral and the real economic cost of what's going on. We experienced that with um, our former DA, which was um, Steph Williams. That ironically, he opposed. He is the re- the main reason why we are on lifetime parole. And ironically, he ended up going to prison himself for corruption, and now he's parading as a person that want a second chance himself mm-hmm. and when I look at him you know I, I always tell him how does it feel you know you oppose us from coming home but now us meaning juvenile lifers are the ones that's helping you readjust after your conviction in federal prison 
same people you wanted to keep in prison. To me, it's a personal issue because I understand what it is to be in prison for life. I understand what it is to have a district attorney come in the courtroom and say, we want you to serve life again and refuse to even acknowledge a portion of your transformation. Because I'm willing to bet my life that all 51 cases that she's trying to resentence to life in some way been transformed. Because there's no way in the world you sit in prison for 30, 40 years or longer and not be touched and accept accountability. If you ask every lifer that's been in jail over 10 years, they tell you, I've set responsibility. I don't know what I was thinking when that happened. It was a mistake. And in some cases, I was just with such and such. So when I hear that, it breaks my heart. Because what we really saying, you don't have a potential to live life like anybody else in the community. How can one person say that 51 individuals don't have that potential? When we have not one, not two, we have almost four Supreme Court decisions going all the way to Simmons and Ropers that led the way to Miller. You telling me one person that you went case by case and you don't see the potential in none of these cases, I say to you, the Justice Department should investigate you if you telling them that not one out of them 51 is redeemed to come home. What's wrong with that picture? But when you look at the racial makeup in Wayne County, then you could kind of put it together. You know, I'm willing to bet that a good portion of them 51 um, people are black or Hispanic. 98%. (laughs) So based on that, it goes back to what I always say. We have to change the institutional racism that still exists in some of these institutions, such as Wayne County with the DAs. Some of these DAs wasn't even born when some of these crimes occurred. They just read the first page of your record and we making decisions on that. And if us, those that's been home, those that have a platform to spread the message, don't speak up, then we just as guilty as that DA. You know, and it kills me when I hear people say, but they letting out juvenile lifers. No, you're not. You letting out middle age and in some cases seniors. They would never reoffend again. All they want is one chance to be with their family. And in some cases, a lot of them are sick, has all types of health problems. They are not gonna be a problem to you or anybody in the community. So to my neighbors, I always say, the prison walls are not only there to keep us in, they're also there to keep the public from knowing what's occurring. You as my neighbor have the right to know the kind of treatment that's being offered 
in these institutions. Don't act so, like that's not my problem. It is your problem. Because today is me, but tomorrow it could be your grandson, your son, your daughter, your nephew, your husband. It could be you. So you should want to know what's going on in these institutions. And you have that right because you pay taxes. Well, one of the things that we've always tried to do, doing a lot of press, doing reports, um, speaking out whenever possible, uh, is because you know historically that human rights violations happen Torture happens when it's behind closed doors where there's no one who can see. That's when the worst things happen. Every, it's always been like that. And so when you put pri- people in prison and you don't shine the light and you don't let people see what's going on in there, that's when the worst abuses start to happen. And so it's crucial that people get out and talk when we just finished a case this year suing the Department of Corrections on behalf of youth who were put in the adult prisons and who were subject to solitary and abuses. And the state had to pay $80 million to a little over 300. And part of the reason to do that suit was to say, this is what people who have been put in there as children have all gone through, have all gone through. They have served the hardest of time. It's not your imagination of TVs and card games. It's just not what you have been sold on the outside. It's really loss of freedom and separation from family is devastating. And so you have to overcome all of that. You have to grow up in there. You have to have the strength to forgive, you know, yourself. You have to have the strength of remorse. You have to be become a man or a woman in those really difficult circumstances where society has thrown you away, who has said, there will be no good coming of you. That's why we can lock you up for the rest of your life. You have to overcome all of that. You have to be somewhat spectacular in a way. And so when you start shining the light on that, and when we have gotten prosecutors to say, to agree, we've said, okay, you have charged everyone in your county with life without parole. Meet them. We're going to do the meat challenge. You go out and talk to my clients. I don't need to be there. I don't care. I trust. Go and talk to them. And if you'll go do that on a one-on-one, then you'll come back and tell me that person deserves to be there for the rest of their life and you're sure of it. Okay. Not a single after we had those meets, not a single prosecutor pursued life without parole for a single person. When they actually talked human to human. Because you can't, control, you can't keep that demonization going. And if we could require that kind of meeting of people. And these were, some, these were not the progressive prosecutors. But they were sure that they were going to be able to meet and come back and see someone that they could feel comfortable saying you don't ever get a chance and not one of them did and so it's so important to shine the light that you're doing and to have people understand who is in there and who people can be when they come out and that what we owe a helping hand when people come out to integrate 
back with dignity and strength into our communities. Still today, the prosecutor calls it a cold-blooded killing. An argument during a drug deal that turned deadly. 15-year-old Derek Pimpleton was left for dead, shot four times by Ahmad Williams. Today, in a packed courtroom more than 18 years after it all happened, Williams pled his case for a minimum sentence and a shot at parole. It is not a day that, that doesn't go by that I'm not in regret. And I will always have remorse for the rest of my life for what I've done. But Pimpleton's family didn't hear that kind of apology way back when. They say Williams showed no remorse when it all went down. The victim's sister and wiped away tears as she described you the know, scar left on her family. We just didn't grow up the same. He took somebody else's life and, you know, I don't, I do feel like one day he should get out, but I don't feel like it should be anytime soon. Ultimately, thanks in part to letters of support from the original judge in the case and Williams probation officer, Judge Trusak granted him a best case scenario sentencing, the minimum of 25 to 60 years in prison. My name is Donnell. I'm from Philadelphia, PA, born and raised in North Philly. I've never been uh, incarcerated myself, but my brother, he was uh, incarcerated for 13 years for armed robbery and that's one of the reasons that I'm really big on uh, ensuring that folks that have been through the system come out and have a way, uh, a better way. Because uh, he came out and uh, he had nowhere to go um, with a record. Nobody would hire him. He was a good dude. He got caught up with the wrong crowd, made some bad decisions. And uh, I remember being in the courtroom and the two guys that went into the store actually had weapons because he didn't have a weapon. Um, and it's funny, in the surveillance video that they showed, he didn't even know they were going to rob the place. And when they pulled out the guns and broke the glass, he ducked down on the floor. Uh, and, it's, and it's like, it, it was just crazy. But knowing how hard it was for him to try and reestablish himself in society when he was already judged based off of a record, based off of things on a piece of paper, not knowing the changes that he went through as a person, trying to build himself up, it's tough. So, you know, I, I tried to align myself with anybody, I mean, anyone that wanted to help our city do better and, and help folks that went through the system to have a better shot at being reconnected with society and, and, and our city because you just can't throw people out. So that's me. That's it. Cool. I just learned something new about Donnell, man. That's awesome, man. Awesome, awesome. But that that's real powerful, man. That's very powerful. My name is Silberto Gonzalez. Um, born and raised in Philadelphia. I grew up in the same, actually, which is funny. I grew up in the same neighborhood as Donnell because we were in the Spring Garden and, and Poplar Street area. And I, I think we might, I, I went to start at Fleischer. I went to Ben Franklin. I went to, uh, for when I flunked, I went to William Penn for summer school, <laughs> but I'm a little bit older than Donnell, a lot older, I think. But I grew up in the neighborhood and just all my life, I think young people in North Philadelphia, whether they realize it or not, we are on this death wish. I mean, it's like, like we don't know it, but everything we do is in this in this small world, you know, and everything we know is in that small world. And so like, you know, getting into fights, joining gangs and all that other stuff is just part of being 
in the neighborhood. That's just what, what you do because everybody else does it. Growing up in Spring Garden, I had family members in one of the largest Puerto Rican gangs in Pennsylvania, one of the oldest gangs in Pennsylvania, the two OGs. There was a gang in your neighborhood, Donnell, called Poplar Street Guys. There was also the Tenderlines. There was also the Moroccos. These were all gangs that, that as a kid, I was in some way associated with. And then just growing up in that environment, I saw police abuse. I saw police beat up on the people that I love. That just made me angry and it made all of us angry. So, so we learned to hate the system because of the, the and, I, and I see it, I would see it from my window. I would see police just beat on people. And that's kind of like just reflecting on it. That's a horrific thing for kids to see. But all, all of that just made me who I am. And, and I think I'm, I'm a better person because of those experiences. And as I got older, I realized that nothing changed. The younger guys coming up were living the same kind of life I was living. In fact, they're still living it. And that's my problem. So, so one of the things that I've done with especially ex-offenders, people that come out of prison and cannot get a, a, freak, a, a shot, you know, because, it, because on that fucking application, I'm sorry, they have to put that they've been incarcerated. That instantly, instantly, will, that application will be trashed. Those guys won't even get a, a look over. So, so that was making me angry. So one of the things I did um, was I discovered a way to beat the system. And because I discovered this way to beat the system, I was able to get many guys coming out of prison, especially in the 80s when when the whole drug, when people got seven years for for marijuana possession, we discovered a way to get these guys jobs. And man, we did it. And and my only the only thing I asked for these guys when they got out and they asked for my help, I said, don't you get in trouble because you're going to fuck it up for everyone else. If you we do this, you're going to keep this job and you're going to turn your life around and by the blessing of God, every single person that we got a job, they right now have a job and they call me. They stay in touch with me. They say, yo, brother, everything's going good. That proved to me and it should prove to everyone that things could be you grow up one way, but given the opportunity, you can flourish and you can blossom. And that's one of the reasons why two years ago I ran for political office. And this year, I think I'm going to start again and we're going to run for Congress. And for me, I think that's the only way to change the policies that don't work for people that get incarcerated. But one thing that that blows my mind and should blow the mind of every person in the United States is if they pick up a young brother for dealing drugs, they will give him seven years and it will cost each year close to eighty, dollars $100,000 to keep this person locked up. Why not take that $100,000? Give him a home, give him food, clothing, give him education, give him the opportunity he never had with that money rather than lock them up. I promise you, if they were to change the freaking laws, things would be better for our people, man. This is Gil. I, I mean, I have a lot of questions. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with Donnell. So talk to me a little bit about the impact on your family and the community with the incarceration of your brother and kind of how that impacted you as an individual as well, because these are the stories that people need to hear. Man, it, it was, it was tough. Um, it, it was vivid too. I, I literally, it's like it was yesterday uh, being in a courtroom. I'm like 12 years old, seeing my brother come out in handcuffs and, 
in an orange jumpsuit being escorted by a police officer and seeing how it affected my mom. My dad, well, I considered his father my father. We had two different dads, but his dad kind of raised me. So, it, I mean, it, it was, it took a toll on the family because my mom and my dad argued. Uh, they blamed each other based off, you know, a decision that he made. And growing up, it was tough because my brother looked out for me in the neighborhood that I was in growing up in North Philly around Pentown and Spring Garden Apartments. I'll be honest with you. I was angry at him. I was pissed for years. He was like, because I would write him at first and then I stopped writing him because I was mad. You did something stupid that took you away from me. So I, I guess I was being selfish in, in, in a sense there. But you know, I had to grow up without a big brother. You know, I had to learn a lot of those things because my mom was a single parent, even though my dad would come around. Growing up in the projects, a uh, young kid of color, it was so many opportunities for me to go down the wrong path. And I was angry at my brother for doing that. But then I also respected him in a sense to where he showed me where not to, where I shouldn't go. So I actually, because of the mistakes he made, allowed me to not go down that same road. And I remember one of the little small gangs came up to me and they was like, no, um, you so cookie cutter, you could sell weed with nobody even know. Like, you should do this, you should do that. And, and I'm like, no, <laughs> you know, and I would tell folks, I'm like, y'all understand, you don't live with my mom. Cause after my brother got locked up, my mom got strict. She would call my name, full name, first name, middle name, last name, out the window at seven o'clock and my behind needed to be back in the house, you know? And I'm like, y'all got to deal with her. I got to deal with her. If I get caught, I ain't worried about no police. I ain't worried about no judge. I'm like, she going to kill me. It was tough. And again, what's crazy, me and my brother still haven't had that talk yet. We, we have it. I'm 40 now. He's 10 years old. So he's 50 and we still haven't had that talk. We still haven't laid it out there. And, and I still haven't been able to tell him how I felt. I just kind of put it under the under the rug, but it, it affected every my sister 13 years. And then when he came out, it was tough because he was changed. He was different. And he walked different. He acted different. He talked different because he, he spent a lot of his younger adulthood in the prison system. So his mannerisms and everything was complete. And I'm looking at this dude. He's foreign. Like, I, I have no idea how he's moving right now. It, it was it, it took a lot and I, I still don't think we're completely there because we haven't had that talk but and I don't, nobody in the family has and I think for a lot of families of color when that happens and you have somebody come back into the family I don't think they sit down and actually have that that conversation of that missed time and, and what was deleted from that amount of time that was gone and, and what, what's needed to make up for it and so that gap kind of holds. And I think that's for a lot of families because, you know, I don't know if anybody really has that talk, which is needed. You know, you need to sit down and, and really have that conversation and say, hey, 13 years have gone. Th this this is me now. And this is you. We, we need to find a way to to meet in the middle and merge. And we have it. I think that you should have that conversation with your brother. And it should be a family conversation, not just a one on one conversation. Because I guarantee you, if you ask the family, they all feel some type of weight about him going away. If he was the oldest brother, you know, the feelings of abandonment, the feelings I don't have my oldest son here, you know, I don't have my brother, 
you know, it's, it's a lot of feelings involved and that conversation needs to be had. But I want to go back to Gil for a minute because Gil says something important, right? That he saw people uh, in the community get beat up and abused. So let me ask you this, Gil. It's obvious that you've been impacted by the prison system, police system, and the whole system as a total, right? How do you feel about the people that you lost, close friends? Because at that time when you was coming up in the neighborhood, it was like a family in that neighborhood. Everybody was family. Everybody knew each other's mother, aunts, brothers. How do you feel about the brothers and sisters that you lost to the prison system? And you'll make me cry. <laughs> um, you can't cry in this show. And you, you actually, you knew some of the old heads when you were locked up. You know, some of the two OG old heads that, that I think one of them was still locked up. It's still locked up. It's still doing life. Nah, man, it was in, in the 70s. It was, uh, it, I mean, it, it the, and I did a documentary about the two OGs. Um, these guys actually, I think it was in the 60s or 70s, the, the abuse got so bad from the police that um, they actually fought the police and sent 12 police officers to the hospital um, because the abuse was so bad in our neighborhood. Again, that, that was all we knew. That was all we knew back then. That, that was it. That was our life. You know, our life was working and then coming home and, and suffering all the abuse in the streets and, and watching our young men go to, go to prison. And some cases, to be honest, I'll, I'll tell you some cases, some moms were like, I'm glad my son's locked up because if he was out here, he'd be killed. So, so, so yeah. And that, and, you know, and I guess because of that experience, that's why that's why like when when in the eighties when those guys were getting out after doing seven years for, for possession, I mean, dude, I mean for possession. I mean, like, you know, everybody's just trying to earn a dollar, you know, and, and then and and again, you don't back then you don't know what's going on, but then you you know, at my age you look and you read history, the that was part of the industrialization of the country. That's when factories were leaving, you know, and, and it's true, it's true that 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 history that we don't know about impacted our lives. Those factories leaving, going to China, all these companies leaving, you know, and Donnell, you you were down at Spring Garden, you know, that was a heavy duty industrial area, you know, and everybody there was there to work. We weren't there to do all the stuff that, that everybody was doing to try to survive. I mean, cause that, that's the other thing when, when in the set, and it's happening right now, again, people are just trying to survive. People are trying to make a dollar to survive, to pay that electric bill, to pay that gas bill, um, to buy a pair of sneakers. And for and it's sad that we're still there. It's sad that we're still there. And it still it still hurts me, man. It still hurts me to see so many of our young people go to prison when when they shouldn't be going to prison. I mean, but what do you say to the people that honestly going to work, struggling to live day by day? What do you tell them when they see one of these knuckleheads in the neighborhood pulling the gun out and trying to stick them up and shooting them. What do, what do you say to them? The, the community suffers. Like, like, you know, that young man that's pulling out the gun and robbing somebody, he's, he's robbing them for, for they could be a hundred di- different reasons, but he wouldn't be there robbing people. He wouldn't be there mugging people if it wasn't for, for something that happened, you know? And, and and so like for the people who the hardworking people the the ones who you know like and it still happens today when 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 my family and friends when they, I was a kid but when they all worked they would come home they would get mugged they would get robbed 
And that's still happening today. People go to work, they come home, they get robbed. It's a whole societal problem. I tell people, hey, look, the only way things are going to get better is if, you know, and I, I don't mean to go back into this, but we, you know, the only way things are going to change is if we elect people that really care, people that are going to really push the envelope and make policy changes and law changes that are really going to freaking change things. And right now there's nobody, there are very few people in office that are willing to to take that battle on because everybody think, you know, these folks think about, well, how am I going to keep my office? I got to stay in office. I got to do, you know, the political thing. I got to do what the party says. I got, you know, I mean, there are a lot of moving parts to this and, and it, it all boils down to when I talk to people, I say, we got to have faith. We got to have faith and we got to get out and we got to, we got to walk together. If we're together, if we're walking together, man, we're going to make that change that's needed. But as long as we stay apart and pointing fingers at each other and 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 not really realizing what is going on, then, then we're going to be stuck in that cycle, right? If you are elected to Congress, would you or would you not advocate for lifers to get parole in the state of Pennsylvania, being that Pennsylvania is one of the few states that don't allow parole for lifers. And when somebody goes in for life, that means that they die in prison. As a congressman, and speaking about advocating, will you advocate on a state level, being a congressman, will you advocate to have life sentences in Pennsylvania eradicated and allow people that's been in prison 30, 40, 50, and in some cases 60 years the opportunity to come home? Yes or no? On the On the principle of it, yes. Definitely, yes. I mean, and, and, and again, like that kind of answer, right? What, that kind of question, what that, that question has to realize is that, that from the very beginning that that young man is caught in the system, the funding to lock him up comes from the state. The state, they're state prisons, but now they're privatized prisons, right? This, this, is, this is a big moneymaker thing for many people is is incarcerating these young guys from the moment they get arrested the system has to change the system has to change right it has to uh, the system should be designed to build lives not destroy them so it's very easy to say yeah i'll support that lifers to end life sentences but it can't just be that it can't be just that it has to be everything has to change from the moment that person gets arrested yeah i mean so we've got a we've got a da here and a da there in philly and in san francisco that are allegedly you know and are progressive da's trying to push through some changes to how these laws are applied and or created who are getting a lot of pushback from victims rights advocates right but when i when i think of victims rights I think of people like Donnell as well. I don't think of just the actual victim of the, the, the crime. The whole community suffers. How are we as a society going to heal this suffering when we're keeping children in prison and then when they get out, having them on lifetime parole so they can't act like normal members of society? And, you know, I think, I think Suave hit on a good point. How do we start to change that? Because the the facts are the facts. And we, we talk about this all the time. When you hit age 45, 50, 60 years old, you age out of crime if you've done so as a juvenile. If you're in as a juvenile offender, 
chances are you've aged out at that point. So we've got people coming back, entering into society, but they're wearing the scarlet letter the, the, the entire rest of their lives, you know? And we're talking about states and localities that say after seven years, your record doesn't matter. It disappears. But, you know, I can speak for Suave because we talk all the time. We're talking about a, uh, a crime that he was convicted of 33 years ago at this point, 34 years ago. And it's still on his record. <laughs> so we can say we're going to change these laws, ban the box, all this other stuff. But what are we really doing to heal these problems? And how are we truly getting these men and women off paper so that they can live normal lives and not feel like their safest bet is to go back to prison because they're getting harassed by their parole officer all the time? So you're right. Again, there are so many moving parts to what you just said, right? So like when the DA says uh, they're advocating to, to eradicate life sentences... When, and, and people see that, right? And they're progressives and, and yes, you know, that, that sounds great. But the reality is, is that that can't be the only thing done. You have to do, like, for example, when a young man comes out of prison, and we all know this, right? When a young man comes out of prison and they have a record, it is almost impossible for them to get a job. Almost impossible. If you don't fix that part too, then it doesn't matter if you get rid of the life sentence. If they can't get a freaking job and they can't start organizing their life together, then it doesn't matter because you're going to doom them to fail in the streets again. You know, so so that's why I like like that. I, and I know that that one question, would you support that? Yeah, but that, you know, there's so many other parts that that need to happen. So that's why when when DAs say that we're going to do this, I'm like, well, what about all this other stuff? that contribute to it. You know, it, it is, it, when you have a pilot, that's, and I've learned this, when you have a politician that says, yeah, we're going to do this, then you really have to think about what that means. For example, fair housing. Oh, well, Philadelphia, we, we need fair housing. So they're going to, they're going to build uh, about 250 units of housing of affordable housing in a community that's being gentrified in North Philly. Right. So they, they want to try to help gentrification, slow down gentrification. So what is the problem with that? That sounds beautiful. That sounds great. But what is the problem? When you talk about affordable housing for them, it means a person paying $1,200, $1,400 a month. Can Philadelphia is one of the highest poverties in the nation, highest, high, poorest communities in the nation. How can people that make $12,000 a year, a household, afford $1,400, $1,200 a month rent? They can't. So when you talk about affordable housing, who the hell are you really talking about? You know what I'm saying? So, so it's like, it's like, it's like, yeah, you know, like, and, and, and I, and I, and I kind of, people need to really kind of like understand. And that's one of the missions I have is to help people understand that, that when you have people making promises of something, then you have to realize what that means. What does that mean? And, and, and is that really the only thing that can be done? We are almost running out of time. Um, I say this, thank you for coming on the show and Donnell, thank you for sharing your experience about your brother. Um, but I say this to every elected official, everyone that's trying to run for office, running for office in the name of reforming the system is good. It's, in some cases, it gets you elected, but you cannot reform the criminal justice system if you don't bring in the conversation abolishing death by incarceration and the incarceration of children. You cannot reform the system if that conversation is not on the table. 
Thanks again for a great first season. We have some big announcements for our bonus content, a new DBI produced show, and season two. We will dive into the story of Bob Clark, incarcerated from the age of 13 and currently serving a sentence of 121 to 222 years in the state of Nebraska. Bob was first arrested in 1968 for vandalism, was transferred to a men's prison at 14, and is still incarcerated. There will be a few episodes from our trip to Philadelphia, both our live event and our on-site interviews with the Nomo Foundation. DBI is proud to produce our first spin-off show, Injustice, with Lisa Spees and Spencer Daniels, where we will look into wrongful convictions. Each case will be four to five episodes, and we'll take a deep dive into how the U.S. criminal justice system is quick to convict, even without physical evidence, and slow to correct mistakes. Our second season is all about women. Over the past decade, the number of women in prison has increased by 700% in the United States. We'll talk to women in prison, individuals who were formerly incarcerated, advocates, victims, and family members. Women in prison and the criminal justice system is a topic that is often ignored. We'll shed light on this critical issue. Thank you again so much to our sponsors, Bella Canvas and Checker, for such a great first season. We look forward to releasing more material in the near future. Thank you.